Well, thanks, guys. It's so awesome just to get to share what I feel like the Lord has on his heart for us this morning. There's really beautiful things that the Father always has in mind when he when we come together as the body. And so I want to share a little bit of my story, but then also just share kind of what is on the Father's heart for us as the body of Christ and being an extension to those who don't yet know Jesus. And so I have a question for us this morning, and I would love for everyone to be 100% honest, okay? And my question is this. When you hear the word evangelism, are you filled with excitement and delight and joy and no bad memories ever at all? Does anyone have that experience with the word evangelism? No? Good. Yeah. Me? Neither. And honestly, when the Lord called me to go to ORU and put it on my heart to study evangelism and outreach, I wasn't super excited. I was like, God, why do I have to study this? There's so many other things I could be studying. But I felt like he placed that on my heart super specifically. And for me, most of my life, when I heard the word evangelism, I was filled with fear kind of thinking, man, I don't know how to talk to people who don't know Jesus. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I make them hate God because of what I say to them? Or I was filled with dread, kind of feeling like this is a responsibility that I have to have, and this is something that Jesus clearly says he wants for the body of Christ to do in the Great Commission, but like, I don't think I'm very good at this. And so I kind of had this sense of dread, or even this frustration of, I've seen evangelism done in ways that maybe doesn't fully reflect the character of Jesus. And so I'm frustrated with the church or maybe even insecurity of, well, I don't know if my walk with God is good enough for me to even invite other people in. And so those were kind of some of the feelings that I had as I engaged the word and topic of evangelism. And so kind of going back to the question that Kemp asked a couple weeks ago when he said, stand up if you're excited about what God is doing in your life right now. During that time when God called me to go to ORU to study evangelism and outreach, I would not have been standing up because I was not excited to study it. I wasn't ready, and I didn't have a lot of good things in my mind when thinking about it. And perhaps the reason why I was so turned off by the word evangelism is because I hadn't seen it done in a way that reflected the character and nature and beauty of Jesus. Recent statistics are showing that there's a new way that people are coming to Christ during this time. And this is one of the awesome things that I've gotten to study since I've been at ORU, is the statistics on how people are coming to know Jesus. And one thing that I've learned that rocked my world was this. Recent studies show that 59% of people report that they were led to faith in Christ by a friend or a family member. And the remaining 42% of people who have come to Christ in recent years were led to Christ by a church staff member, a work colleague, a neighbor, a teacher, or a stranger. But the mass percentage, 59% of people who are coming to Christ, are being led to him by friends and family members. And then when we look at methods, what methods of evangelism are working? What methods do the statistics show to be most effective? We see that 59% of people say that conversations with family members and friends was the most impactful method for their conversion. And then when we look at other methods and the statistics that back up those, we see 2.1% say that conversations with colleagues were most effective. 12.5% say that evangelistic events that churches put on were most effective. 5.5% say that visitation was the most effective method, which visitation, by the way, is like door-to-door ministry or approaching strangers on the street. 
And then 2.4% say that worship services or church services were the most effective method for their conversion. So we kind of see these like one-digit numbers for visitation, evangelistic events. But when we look at conversations with family members and friends, we see that 54% of people say that that was the most effective method for lighting up their heart and bringing them into the kingdom of God. And so what does this say? What are the statistics saying? I think that they're saying that relationship is key. Relationship is the most important aspect of evangelism because Jesus' invitation into the kingdom of God is always relational and it's always personal. And I want to look at a story in the Bible where we see that illustrated really well. And that story is in Luke chapter 19, and it's verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to read a little bit of this story. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable to due to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass that way. So now before we move on into the rest of the story, I want to give you guys a little bit of context for what's going on here. There's a lot of things that actually are happening in this story that as kind of second century Christians, we wouldn't know these things. But first century Jews would understand these things in ways that we might not understand them today. And so just to give a little bit of of context, in saying that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, this automatically means that the people in that surrounding area would not have liked Zacchaeus. Tax collectors in biblical times worked for the Roman government. And I know a lot of us might know this, but the Roman government was pretty oppressive for the Jewish people. And so people who worked as tax collectors for the Roman government were not loved by the Jews. Oftentimes they exploited Jews and stole from them and mistreated them in super big ways. And so Zacchaeus was not someone who was kind of respected by the people in this crowd that he was a part of. Another thing that's really important is, I know a lot of us maybe have heard this story before in like vacation Bible school, and we all have the little song that we sing about Zacchaeus climbing up in the trees so that he could see Jesus. But one thing that's important to note culturally about this text is that Zacchaeus' problem wasn't just that he was short. That's not the only reason why he climbed up into a tree to see Jesus. One of the main reasons why Zacchaeus had to climb up into the tree to see Jesus is because he was also hated. And when tax collectors were in large crowds of people, that was the perfect opportunity for someone to take them out. And so they often avoided large crowds of people because they knew, oh, if I'm in this large crowd, someone could just stab me and I'm done. And so Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree, not just that he could see Jesus because he was short, but also because he knew that if he stayed within this crowd trying to get a look at Jesus, it would be very dangerous for him. And then one other point that I thought was just really fun was kind of looking at Middle Eastern culture. People who were successful never, ever, ever climbed trees. So Zacchaeus was doing something that was completely socially inappropriate. Middle Eastern rich men did not ever do this, but Zacchaeus did. So I'm going to move on to verse 5, and it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now there's something really important here as well. In Middle Eastern culture, when people 
guests came to your house for a meal, it was as if they were fully welcoming you into their life. Meals were really, really important in Middle Eastern culture, and it was kind of a place where people of similar status would match up and eat together. And so by Jesus inviting himself over Zacchaeus' house for a meal, he was saying, Zacchaeus, I identify with you. I want to be welcomed into your life, and I want you to welcome me into your life. Can I come over for dinner? But one thing that's really important culturally that we see here is because Zacchaeus was a tax collector and it was expected that he exploited people to gain money, this meant that his house, his resources, and his food were defiled, which meant that if Jesus were to go to his house, Jesus would be ritually unclean after visiting Zacchaeus' house because his food, his bed, his house and everything that he owned and bought with this money that he maybe exploited people to get was unclean and was defiled. And so by Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house, he was taking a really big risk. And that's why we see in the next verses the crowds begin to grumble. So in verse 6 it says this, And he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. When the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor, and if I have extorted anyone from anything, I am giving back four times as much. So we see here, as soon as Jesus says, Hey, Zacchaeus, I want to come over, the crowd begins to say, Wait, no, you can't go over his house. Why would you want to go over his house? He's a tax collector. His stuff is defiled. His stuff is unclean. He's done all of these things. They begin to accuse Zacchaeus. And as I heard this story as a little girl, I always remember hearing, whenever Jesus went over to Zacchaeus' house, his life was so transformed that he said, no, Lord, I'll pay back everyone four times as much as I took and half of my money I give to the poor. But when we look at the tenses of the original Greek and what this story is actually saying, what's going on here is Zacchaeus is actually trying to defend himself. He's saying, Lord, I give half of everything that I make to the poor, and whenever anyone even thinks that I've exploited them, I pay them back four times as much. So this isn't the aftermath of his encounter with Jesus. It's actually his attempt to defend himself to Jesus so that Jesus doesn't run away from him and choose not to stay at his house after hearing the accusations of the crowd. It's so easy when Jesus invites himself over and says, hey, I want to come stay with you, for us to begin to defend ourselves and say, well, Lord, like, look at all of these good things that I'm doing. Of course you can come over. I'm a good person. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus is doing here in this story. But then in verse 9, this is what Jesus says. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. So what Jesus is saying here is, hey, hey, Zacchaeus, I know the crowd is accusing you of doing all of these bad things, but none of that matters. I don't care if you've collected fair taxes or if you've exploited everyone. I don't care if your house is perfect or if your house is completely defiled. Today, salvation has come to you. I'd like to stay with you. I'd like to come over. That's what Jesus is saying here in this story. And then finally, he says one other thing that's just beautiful and blows my mind every time I read it. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's the end of the story. So 
I don't know what kind of conversations Jesus had with Zacchaeus when he went to his house. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. But one thing that I do know is that Jesus is pretty great at transforming people into new creations. He's got a really awesome track record of that. And I'm sure that after he spent that night at Zacchaeus' house, there was something different about Zacchaeus after that happened. And we kind of see in this story, man, the way that Jesus interacts with people and pulls them into the kingdom of light is through relationship. And he does this because he is a relational God. And we see that from the very beginning of time. We see in eternity past, we know that the Father, Son, and Spirit existed in this beautiful relationship where the Father was looking at the Son saying, Son, I love you. And the Son was looking back at the Father saying, Father, I love you. And the Spirit was looking at the Father and saying, Father, I love you. And looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, I love you. There was this eternal relationship for all of time between Father, Son, and Spirit where they encouraged one another and spent time with one another and communed with one another and loved one another. And theologians from the early church say that the reason why the Father, Son, and Spirit created Adam and created humanity is because they wanted an object for their affection. They wanted children to pour their love on and to shower their love on and to invite into this relationship that they've had with one another for all of time. There's this great invitation from God to be a part of the relational life between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is what Jesus invites people into when he invites us into the kingdom of God. He invites us into this space of being loved. And that is the sole purpose of our existence, to be loved by God and to be cherished by God and to commune with God. He's a relational God and he's constantly inviting people in. And the way that he invites people in is through relationships. And so in that space of relationship, we get invited into the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And then we become the hands and feet of Jesus to pull other people in to the relationship that we now also have with God. We become ministers of reconciliation, partnering with God to announce to the world that new life has come in Jesus. New life is waiting for them. And I love what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says about this. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that good news? That is such good news. Yeah. And I love what the Passion Translation says about verse 20. It says this, We are 
ambassadors of the anointed one who carry the message of Christ to the world, as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. So we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf. Turn back to God and be reconciled to him. So this scripture here is saying that we are ambassadors of Christ. And what an ambassador does is an ambassador goes into a foreign country to represent the country that they come from. And so we, being ambassadors of Christ, represent the kingdom of heaven. We represent inclusion in the life of the Trinity, in the life of God. This is our home country. And now, as Christ's ambassadors, he tenderly pleads through us to those who are still living in the kingdom of darkness, saying, come back to me. I've always wanted you. I've always known you. I want you to come home to me. This is what Christ does through us as his ambassadors. And just like Jesus was saying to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, as he said, Zacchaeus, can I come over? This is what he tenderly pleads through us, through our lives, through our relationships. He reaches out to people through us saying, can I come over? I don't care if your life is perfect or if your life is completely defiled. I don't care who you've exploited. I don't care who you've hurt. I don't care what you've done. I would just like to come over. He's looking for us to invite other people in. And he never accuses us or anyone else like the people in the crowds were accusing Zacchaeus. God is always giving us an open invitation. And he's pleading through us to invite others in to the kingdom of heaven. And so we also know that an ambassador's goal is to build international relations, right? And so my question for you this morning is, are you doing that? As an ambassador of Christ, are you building international relationships? Are you, being one who is in the kingdom of light, building international relations with those who are in the kingdom of darkness, pulling them in to the life of God? This is what he longs for. This is what he loves. And in order to do that, we kind of have to lodge with people, stay with people like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. And I will be the first to say, this is really messy. How many of you know that relationships are really messy? Relationships with messy people are really messy. Yeah, this international relation, being an ambassador of Christ, is a really messy thing. It's costly, right? Because people sometimes don't act the way towards us that we would want them to, right? When we get in these relationships, sometimes people stab your back. Sometimes people go out of their way and do things that you weren't expecting. Sometimes there's curveballs. Things get really messy. But the thing about our God is that he is extremely patient in these processes of relationships with messy people, right? And he loves process. This is one thing about God that kind of frustrates me, honestly. If I were God, I would not be nearly as patient as he is. Even in thinking about the history of the church, we see the fall happen in Genesis 3. And then it is years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. Years. God could have had Jesus be Eve's son if he really wanted him to, right? But that wasn't what he wanted because he's a patient God and he loves writing stories and he's a patient story writer. How many of you know if a story is rushed, it's not good? And so God is writing this beautiful story in patience and he's doing it through us as he tenderly pleads through us to those who are still in the kingdom of darkness. And like I said, his invitation into the kingdom of light is always relational and it's always personal. You know, in all of the things that I have learned in studying evangelism at ORU, there's been one main thing that 
continues to roll around in my head. One main thing that I am constantly thinking about as I think about, man, how do I build international relations? How do I pull people into the kingdom of God? And it's this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This is something that one of my evangelism teachers always says at ORU. And it's something that I've thought about deeply and realized, oh my goodness, yeah, that's so, so true. And just to kind of illustrate this point, I want to tell you guys a story. A couple years ago, I went to Houston with a group of friends for a Friendsgiving celebration. A lot of people at my school live in different areas of the country, and so we don't always all get to go home for Thanksgiving every year. Sometimes we all will just like pile in a car and go to one person's house and all spend Thanksgiving together instead of all having to buy plane tickets to fly home to our various states, right? And so one year, a group of my friends went to Houston to stay with one of my friends. And when we went to my friend's house, she told us, hey guys, I know we're all going to our house, and I know we all love God, and we're all kind of crazy about Jesus, but my sister's boyfriend doesn't know the Lord, okay? So you guys need to be kind of chill because my friends are a little bit crazy, right? Like we make some jokes sometimes that like if someone doesn't really know Jesus, they're like, what is going on here? This is kind of weird. And so on our way to Houston, my friend was telling us, hey guys, you guys need to like chill out, okay? We have a friend here who doesn't know the Lord. And so as soon as we get to to her house, we meet him. And the entire week, Everyone is bombarding him, being like, hey, like, do you know Jesus? I literally saw one day someone, like, cornered him in the little corner in the kitchen and was standing there like, so, like, if you were to die tonight, are you sure that you'd be going to heaven? And he's like, what? And so the whole week, I'm seeing everyone kind of bombard him, trying to share the gospel with him, trying to be the person who says, I got him saved. And I'm just watching, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not sure this is the way that Jesus would do this. And finally, at the end of the week, something really special happened. We were playing a game, which my friends are kind of crazy, and we like to play listening prayer games. I know that's kind of weird, but we, liked to, we were playing this listening prayer game where we had this stack of cards, and there were questions, and we asked the Lord the answer to the questions for our friends, and it was like this fun little game that we were playing. And he decided to join us to play this game. And so throughout the course of the game, we're having a good time, we're laughing, we're telling stories, we're encouraging one another, and then it gets to be his turn to draw a card, and we're all going to share the heart of the Lord with him based on what his card says. And I don't remember the question that his card had on it, but what happened over that 20 minutes of time was we began to share the encouragement of the Father with him. We began to share the Father's heart with him and build relationship with him. And then he began to share stories from his life and we began to share stories from our lives. And during that interaction of the course of this game, as we uh, poured the encouragement of the Father onto him, something happened in his heart. And there was a moment while we were playing this game where he broke out in tears and said, I didn't know that I could know Jesus like this. And in that moment, he gave his life to the Lord. Yeah. And so what was really beautiful about this was all week long, everyone was bombarding him, cornering him, sharing facts, trying to scare him, having all of these different plans to try and get him to come to Jesus, right? But the thing that sold him, the thing that really opened his heart to the reality of the kingdom of light was relationship fun and encouragement. And the reason why this works is because Jesus's invitation into the kingdom of God is always relational and it's always personal. And so as I've been thinking about evangelism and learning about evangelism at ORU, one thing that I've kind of developed in my mind is this concept that I've labeled Titanic evangelism. Okay. How many of you guys have seen the movie Titanic? Yeah, so when the Titanic 
was on the sea, crashed into the iceberg, right? And like boat snaps in half, everyone's freaking out. And so in my mind, I've created this concept of Titanic evangelism. And what it is, is everything is on fire. Everyone get off the boat right now. Everybody needs to get on the other boats because everyone's going to drown because this boat just snapped in half and we've got to hurry. So there's kind of this hurried, rushed, anxious fear-based evangelism that I've seen in the body of Christ. And man, the Lord has so much better for us in relational evangelism. And so kind of just to give a parallel of this paradigm of Titanic evangelism and then relational evangelism. Titanic evangelism is motivated by fear. It's everybody get off the boat. If you don't get off the boat right now, you're going to die. If you don't come into the kingdom of God right now, you're going to die. You're going to get hit by a truck today. So hurry up and come into the kingdom of God, right? Whereas relational evangelism is motivated by love. We're lovingly inviting people in to the work that God is wanting to do in their lives and the work that he's already doing all around them and even in them. We're partnering with the Holy Spirit so that he can awaken people to his goodness and kindness and love. Titanic evangelism is impersonal, right? We see in the movie, nobody cares if the person that they're trying to get onto the like little lifeboat is their friend or not. It's like, just get on because you're going to die. Just get on the boat. Just get on the boat. Just take the life raft, right? But relational evangelism is deeply present. We're not in a rush with people. We're getting to know them. We're being present with them. We're showing up over and over and over again because that is what God does. That's what we see him do all throughout scripture. Titanic evangelism kind of involves rushed conversations where relational evangelism happens around dinner tables. It's inviting people over for dinner, getting to know them, hearing their stories, showing them how much you care and God cares for them. Titanic evangelism says, you need to change right now. And relational evangelism says, hey, can I come over? Because that's what Jesus says to us. And Jesus' invitation into the kingdom of God is always relational and always personal. And so we see, kind of going back to the story of Zacchaeus, that as Jesus went into Jericho, which is where Zacchaeus was, the text says that he was only passing through right? But Zacchaeus stopped him in his tracks because Jesus saw an invitation. Jesus saw a heart that he was longing to fill. He saw a home that he was longing to stay at. And even though he wasn't even planning to spend the night in Jericho, he stopped and stayed at Zacchaeus's house. And so my question for you this morning to kind of think about with the Spirit of God is this. Are there any places that you've been passing through where Jesus is looking to have a dinner party. And worship team, you guys can come back up. So, man, are there any places in your life where you're you're walking around, you're seeing people, you're meeting people, and Jesus is wanting you to just slow down just a little bit. He's wanting to stop you in your tracks because there's someone there that he wants to stay with. There's a house that he wants to have a dinner party at. And he longs to tenderly plead through you. He's constantly saying, hey, come back to me. Turn back to God. Be reconciled to God. Your father is waiting for you. He leaves the porch light on for you. He loves you. Every day he comes and he stands in the window and he's waiting for you to come home. This is what Jesus is saying through us. This is what he's longing to plead in our lives. And sometimes all we have to do 
is slow down and look up. Is there anyone in the trees kind of having questions? Is there anyone that we see kind of wondering about the Lord? Are there any relationships that God has placed in our life that he's wanting us to steward because he's wanting the kingdom of light to break into that space? And as he pleads through us, Jesus constantly says, come to the Father. He's better than you know. He's waiting for you. So I'd love to pray for you this morning. Father, thank you for your invitation into the kingdom of light. You really are better than we know. And you're looking for opportunities, Father, to partner with us. You're looking for opportunities to minister through us. Father, thank you that you've given us the privilege of being your ambassadors, of building these relations that across international borders of letting the kingdom of light invade the kingdom of darkness through our very lives. Lord, I pray that you would highlight those relationships that we have, that you're wanting to enter into through us. Lord, you tenderly plead through us. And so show us where you're wanting to do that. Show us how you're wanting to do that. Show us your heart. Jesus, we know that it's from this place of being loved that we can love others. And so, Father, I pray that even this morning as we worship, that you would pour your love and affection over us. That's what you long to do as a father. That's why you made us. You made us because you longed for an object to pour your affection on. And so as you do that in us, Lord, would that be the natural outflow of our lives? Every interaction we have would leave the person that we interact with feeling loved by not just us, but loved by you. Because that's the kind of God you are. And that's how you love to move through us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We open our hearts to you this morning. Show us how you're wanting to partner with us and walk with us and work through us so that the kingdom of light can push back the darkness. Jesus, you are light and you give life to all mankind and you say that your light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so show us how you're doing that in our lives and how you're wanting to do that in further ways in our lives. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for this invitation into your relationship the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come and minister to us this morning, Jesus. Good things happen when you show up. Good things happen when you say, hey, can I come over? So do that in us, and then do that through us. For all that in Jesus' name, amen.